You are listening to the For Flourishing Sake podcast by Frederica Roberts. Welcome to episode 54. This is the last of the extended podcast episodes where you've had the opportunity to listen to the replays of the For Flourishing Sake book launch events. Today, I bring you the second half of the fourth and final panel discussion of the book launch extravaganza. This panel was recorded live on the 21st of August, the day the paperback edition of For Flourishing Sake was published. You can also watch all the video replays on the book launch extravaganza page at forflourishingsake.com. The final panel was chaired by Andrew Cowley, author of the Wellbeing Toolkit and of the beautiful foreword to my book. Alongside me, there were three other panellists. They were Paul Bateson, who's a teacher, writer and PGCE tutor at Huddersfield University in the UK. Julie Goldstein, who's a principal at Hartford Magnet Trinity College Academy in the USA. And Dan Morrow, CEO of the Woodland Academy Trust, also in the UK, or he was at the time, he's just started a new job. In this final book launch panel discussion, just as schools in the UK and the US were about to reopen for a new academic year in the midst of a pandemic, we pondered how important positive education is, more than ever. In this second half of the discussion, we discussed where the priorities should lie between dealing with mental health and well-being in the context of COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, or ensuring children catch up, in inverted commas, academically if they have fallen behind. We also had a fascinating conversation about whether kindness can be taught, and if so, how, and we ended the discussion by sharing each of our dreams for the future of education. As I've mentioned previously, you can watch back all of the panel video recordings either on the uh, Book Launch Extravaganza page at forflourishingsake.com or by searching for For Flourishing Sake Book Launch on YouTube and you'll find them all on the Happiness Speaker YouTube channel. Now, before I play back the panel discussion recording, I also need to let you know a little bit of news. Season one of this podcast has been a long season. 54 episodes without break and almost half of those episodes recorded and scheduled in the middle of a pandemic. Therefore, the For Flourishing Sake podcast will now take a little break while I have a bit of a rest and it may come back in a different format or with reduced frequency. I've yet to decide. I do intend for it to come back in whatever form, so do watch this space. And as long as you've subscribed on your usual podcasting app, you'll never miss an episode when it does come back. Now, here is today's episode. Here we are still in the midst of um, a global health emergency. Um, Things have changed in the world a lot in recent months. Obviously, we've got COVID-19, but uh, we've also had highlighted inequalities, social and economic, um, particularly with uh, events in the United States and the the Black Lives Matter agenda. Um, Inequality is perhaps more obvious now than it has been for some time. So the question to panelists now is, what's priority if there is a priority? Is it the children who are falling behind or should the priority be on mental health and well-being? Julie, can I start with you? I saw that coming. (laughs) (laughs) It is is an interesting challenge to look at um, what how to make everything a priority, right? Everything is important. We're about to start our school in um, a couple of weeks 
with after six months of being apart from one another and the, the, the bedrock of the success for this school year has to be in our um, focus on well-being and safety um, um, as well as continuing the momentum that got started shortly after we started distancing um, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey and, and, and others. Um, we we're coming back, we're, we'll be coming back together. And actually this, um, uh, this school year, two initiatives that we're going to be focusing on are both on um, making positive education more intentional through our mission and values and through um, teacher training, as well as our advisory um, and embedding it, all of the things that you see in the book um, for flourishing sake but also in our racial equity um, and awareness. Also starting with teachers, um, developing that awareness, and then also promoting and providing students with a voice um, to continue to get to know themselves better and to speak up and speak out and make change um, from the racial equity standpoint and, and from an anti-racist standpoint. So they go hand in hand and um, positive education actually promotes and makes it less, um, it's uncomfortable for people, but makes it a little bit less intimidating to be uncomfortable um, as we need to grow. And the only way to do that is to um, be able to be courageous and to take on some really difficult institutionalized um, problems that we have in our systems. Hey, thank you, Julie. Okay, um, Paul, how would... Um how would this pan out for you, particularly in terms of uh, you know, training new teachers? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to see a, a world where, you know, <clears throat> there was no real decision in terms of coming back to school now where people are saying, oh, should, you know, should we do more health and well-being now, you know, now that we've had a tough time? I'd like to see a world where that, that was already happening and it, it had already equipped everybody, you know, to deal with the, the, the difficulties as best they could. However, you know, I think, and Fred talked about this earlier, you know, happy children do well and they've not even missed that much school, in my opinion. It'll, it'll really vary students' experience of what's been happening while they weren't in school and that's something that needs looking at very, very closely. In terms of, you know, diving back and just starting to drill children with with content because we think they've fallen behind, I think we'll just create problems further down the line. And Dan referred to that as well in terms of, and people turn up at college and university. Um, I think it'd be crazy to 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 go back to school and ignore the COVID virus or to ignore Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and that's something that I advocate at teacher training anyway, um, you know, to, to teach in context as, as much as possible, you know, not not least to engage students in, in what you're teaching about, but to, to prepare them and, and It'd be crazy to to ignore that, in my opinion. Um, I've seen during lockdown um, teaching key worker children at primary. They needed that that space to explore what was happening. So most of my sessions were based around, you know, I think the you know, the statue got pulled down in Bristol on over the weekend, and that, you know, Monday morning we were we were doing a session on it. Um, I think the the students need some time and space to explore what's happened and that'll make them feel well 
so they can then go on and, and, and catch up in it, if, if you'd like to use that phrase. Yes, that's why I very deliberately put uh, falling behind or catch up in, uh, <laughs> in quotation marks. It's, um, it's a very ill-defined term, isn't it? Okay, Dan, how about, how, about, how about you? I personally think there's two things at work here. Firstly, anyone who's watched the um, A-level and GCSE exam fiasco, quite frankly, where essentially there was a message about prioritising academics, but academia, if you like, over the pastoral care for a generation, and we saw the mental health impacts of that and where it leads, and quite rightly, eventually, eventually, a change which actually starts to redress that. But I think for me, it's about that sense of outsiderism. And I think Black Lives Matters and a whole sense of actually structural exclusion of um, lots of different minoritized groups, there's a there's a fatigue and an, a sort of sense of exhaustion, I think, with a number of minoritized groups that they've been fighting within a, a system so long without finding redress or even always um, people who wish to listen. Um, and therefore, this is an opportunity. I believe it's more than an opportunity, actually. It is an absolute moral imperative to draw a line in the sand that says it isn't about this or that. Because, you know, going back to training, it's Maslow's hierarchy. Without without the safety and the security, we cannot get to self-actualization. And, you know, those who wish to take an agenda which is purely knowledge-based or based on um, an aspect of that, can talk about self-actualization as the goal, but we can't put the cart before the horse because children or any learners actually at any point in their lives coming at a situation without that, that foundation of processing, whether it be emotional or whether it be, you know, intellectual, they're, it's, it, they're all processing issues. And therefore, again, trying to find hierarchies on those makes a mistake of not looking to individual children and individual needs. And that clearly has to be a very personalized and bespoke approach as we go forward because no one has had no one has had the lockdown experience or the pandemic experience each experience is unique bespoke to context and circumstances and our job is to work out what is in those backpacks and then start to unpack them for each and every child and actually just before then we have to do that first for our staff and colleagues who have had different experiences different losses different griefs and in order to ensure both the academic and mental health success of our children, we need to first ensure the mental health um, of all of our colleagues and staff as an absolute priority and with real intention and care. Thank you, Dan. Okay, Brad, over to you on that question. Yes, I mean, so much has, has been said, and, and I like Dan's analogy there of unpacking that backpack, you know, because children do not come into schools um, in isolation. And uh, I think, uh, as, as everybody has alluded to, you know, um, this, this over-reliance, perhaps, on the academic is, is, is quite dangerous. And uh, as Dan mentioned, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, children can't learn if they feel unsafe. So we need to, to start with where they're at. As, as a wonderful book contributor, uh, Kelly Hannigan, quite often says, you know, start where everybody's at and where everybody's at will be different, as Dan said, for everyone. Everyone will have had different experiences of lockdown and of the pandemic. So you need to take that into account. And the, the beauty of of positive education is making space as well for people to talk about their emotions and that's not just the children as well it's the staff um they don't live in a, in a vacuum either you know they, they come into school and and we we put them in charge of our most precious um 
uh, people in society, which, you know, parents put their children in their hands and we need to make sure that staff are well enough to 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 teach those children as well, uh, emotionally as well as physically. So we, we have to address the well-being piece. But I think it goes even further than that when we actually consider that, you know, maybe we only think that they have so much catching up to do because we are teaching to exams and we're teaching to grades. And actually, if we consider what we're trying to achieve through education, surely that is to produce uh, young adults that can go out into the world and stand on their own two feet and that have um, the, the, the resilience and the moral character to make society better, to contribute to society, to work, to study, to do whatever it is they move on to when they leave our schools. And doing that is not something that can just be measured by a grade in an exam. So if we actually look at the holistic aspect of educating children, it's about so much more than academic learning and exams at the end of it. I'm not saying that exams don't have their place at all. They do. But it's about much more than that and the bigger picture. And if we look at the bigger picture, then actually, what have these children learned while they've been going through the pandemic? What have they learned while they've watched the Black Lives Matter movement, while they've watched what's been going on around the world? They've learned an awful lot about what it means to be a responsible citizen. They've learned an awful lot about what it means to deal with trauma, to deal with difficulties, to deal with challenges. How can they take that learning and bring it forward into their lives as they go forward and into their wider education? And actually, if you look at it that way, they haven't actually missed an awful lot. They've probably learned so much more in the last six months than they would have done if they'd just been at school for that time. So I think taking that approach, we, we can safely focus on making sure that they're well enough to learn and actually take maybe the opportunity to look again at different ways that they can learn, because I think this is going to be with us for a long time. So, you know, learning doesn't have to just happen in the classroom. There are lots of blended approaches, lots of self-directed learning. And maybe one of the things we need to focus on more is giving children the tools, the skills and the confidence to be able to self-direct their learning as well and find out information without just having a teacher standing at the front of a class or in front of a computer screen to feed them that information so that they are equipped to deal with that, whatever uh, a pandemic throws at us going forward. Yes, thank you, Fred. Yes, indeed, it's, um, it's a little disappointing at times to see uh, some dismissal of um, things like the trauma or, or struggles that children have um, when they return because it's been a, an unusual six months and we're still partly through it. Okay, very more specific question next. Can we can we teach kindness? And how would you see it being done? Dan, can I start with you on that one? Can we teach kindness and how would you do it? It's a really tricky one, to be fair, because I think a lot of this comes down to definitions. And I was interested in, and partly because of the publication of a book, actually, I, I followed up some of the research. I think it was Lopez et al. who were looking at how characters really hard to find a societal kind of common ground so we can become subjective in schools. Well, even more so kindness, I would suggest. And I think kindness is a really important um, character trait and value. And therefore, it is part of character, in my opinion. Um, I think... And uh, Andrew, this is my own opinion from Twitter. I think sometimes kindness, though, can become in itself a little bit of a, a straitjacket to challenge. And if there needs to be an acceptance within kindness of it's the approach we take. But it doesn't mean, quite frankly, just becoming um, in, a, in a place where we 
we don't actually challenge things that aren't acceptable and we we give too much credit actually to to opinions over facts and i think sometimes you've got to be we've got to use kindness as the double helix which is it's about both an intelligent and an, an emotional response to to each other because it actually relates to relationship relationship is based on trust that trust is formed through connection and therefore it's valuing each and every connection and how we connect with each other to make sure it's both authentic and real and sometimes failures of kindness can be interpreted but actually it's a failure of relationship and and sometimes that must be allowed because we don't always all get on and that's fine but kindness is accepting and respecting someone's different viewpoint and the fact that maybe that's just a viewpoint I don't wish to engage with. Yeah. Good point. Thank you, Dan. Um, Julie. Um, kindness can actually absolutely can be taught and it's actually essential that, that we teach it. Um, and it starts with um, self-care um, for our teachers, teach um being kind to ourselves um, in in all of the ways that help us to be healthy um, in order to allow us to be um, our best. And kindness, um, the way it's taught, I think, again, I, I really go back to a phrase that I, I like a lot that landed well for me, which is that um, character can is better caught than taught. Um, so how it is taught is both implicit and explicit um, through role modeling of um, from our teachers, but also taking time to um, promote the skills that go into kindness that include um, some mindfulness, include eye con helping students in the younger years to make eye contact, to um, use eye messages when talking about disagreements, um, to make someone's day. And there's a lot of science that's co that's um, coming out to back up the um, that the benefits of kindness, both from the um, the one who's providing it and the the one who's receiving it, and um, we know that it's um, it is it can be taught. It needs to be taught, and it needs to be taught in the way that can be um, done intentionally and planned, and also in teachable moments. Um, sometimes the best times to teach are when kindness has not occurred. And how do we um, correct that through different ways of communicating, through restorative um, practices, um, through the use of um, circles and, and methods that, um, that help us to slow down and really um, appreciate the benefits of what it feels like when kindness is more part of the culture within a classroom in a school. Okay, thank you, Julie. Uh, Paul, how about you? Can kindness be taught? I think so, certainly, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think it's really important that, that we do that. Um, it's interesting what Dan was saying. You know, there is a uh, – it's quite difficult to kind of reach a, a consensus on, on what is kindness or what's the best way to be kind. But if we take that as an umbrella term for – self-care as uh, Julie talked about um you know benevolence altruism um compassion trust you know these these are things that, that do need to be taught um you, and you can teach them in different ways demonstrating is 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 one way might not be taught explicitly all the time and and it needs to be practiced i think is the is the key thing so we you know, when children are learning to tie their shoelaces or 
you know, learning how to brush their teeth. We, we show them and, you know, we don't just expect them to know how to do it. And I don't think that we can expect that, that kindness is somehow intrinsic um, in everybody um, unless it's practised. So um, I think, you know, restorative practices are one way of, of demonstrating that in schools, for example. Um, I think we need to allow children, you know, places to, to practise kindness, when I was little, we had a little animal house in primary school and everybody had to do a bit of looking after the animals. And, you know, that we were learning compassion there and we were practicing it. And, you know, we might not have had that opportunity at home or, or anywhere else. So it's it's providing places to, to practice it, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. OK, Fred, to round off with you, can we teach kindness? Uh, yes, I think we can and we need to. I think it goes back to, you know, if you think about parents and we teach children to say please and thank you. Um, and uh, when when I interviewed Flora Barton, for example, for this book, she made a, a, a great example about how um, everybody that visits her school, Cromarsh Gifford Primary School, comments on how, um, how well behaved and polite the children are. But she was saying the politeness is not just about please and thank you. It's actually about being kind and respectful uh, because once you teach children that then it's it's not just about um, saying things like please and thank you and, and seeing that but it's actually about what does it mean you know if you say hello to somebody you ask them how they are and you actually want to hear the answer you give people space to to tell you how they are to tell you how they're feeling uh, you listen to people and engage in what they're saying so all of these things are part of everyday basic kindnesses and then of course it goes beyond that and it goes to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Black Lives Matter you know we need to teach children and lead by example and show them what it means to to be inclusive and and to be kind to other human beings regardless where they come from what color their skin is or whatever you know we're all human beings and we need to extend that kindness and respect to each other and we do that by example as lead uh, as julie mentioned you know uh, character being caught and and we do that through role modeling so uh one of the ways yes we do teach kindness explicitly but we also teach it um through the role modelling. So it has to start with the adults um, in school and we have to model that in our behaviours. And a great way as well to, to show kindness is through recognising other people's character strengths and commenting on those. You know, we can build that into everyday conversations with each other as adults and with children. And it's a great way to role model kindness, to say to somebody, you know, you, you've shown great perseverance in this task. Um, that's a, a great character strength to demonstrate. How else can you do that? You know, um, you have shown great leadership today or um, I, I love how you demonstrate your appreciation of beauty and excellence uh, in your artwork or in recognising other people's artistic creations. You know, you can build that into conversations. And I, I think with what Dan was saying earlier on about, you know, not not using kindness as a straitjacket to let things fly. I think that's really important. Uh, we've seen it again in the UK at the moment uh, with what's been labelled as a refugee crisis. And, and, you know, it's been hyped up by the right wing media and um and, you know, where's kindness gone? You know, where people who are having to put themselves in danger to, to flee to, to somewhere safer and, and people are losing their lives in the process. And then you see comments on right wing media websites where people are saying, Oh, good. I'm glad these people have died. It'll teach the others. It's horrific. Um, we have to show by example that this is not acceptable and being kind does not mean, um, 
just accepting those kinds of opinions or those kinds of comments because we don't want to be rude to somebody. Being kind, uh, I'm reminded of Michelle Obama and she's came back to that this week. She was talking about, um, you know, uh, what she said in the past about when they go low, we go high. And she said this week in a speech that be, going high does not mean ignoring what is unacceptable. Going high actually means challenging what's unacceptable, but doing so in a manner that is respectful. And that comes back to, you know, learning and teaching children to respectfully disagree and to respectfully point out evidence and facts and not just rely on opinion, as, as Dan was saying earlier. So kindness can be taught and being able to debate and discuss in a kind way, in a respectful way, is also something that can be taught. Yeah, thank you, Fred. Uh, and we're obviously here talking about your book, Fred, but uh, one thing, uh, I don't know if other people have uh, been reading this this summer, but uh, Humankind by Rutger Bregman is uh, an excellent um, an excellent book on the subject of kindness. Right, we have time for one more question and no pressure. You have 45 seconds each to answer this one. What is your dream of the future of education? Julie. Uh, um, well, since it's made my last 45 seconds, I just wanted, I, my dream is um, to see positive education as um, equally as important as academics. Um, and it is, um, it's a double helix. So um, for students to be much more part of the forefront of developing um, our curriculum and um, owning schools, um, and for everybody to realize what their their purpose is um, for students to love to come to school. Um, and I, I, I just want to say thank you so much for um, help inviting me to join this conversation and um, to Fred for writing this book. It, it really helps. It will help start a conversation within your school. I know I'm looking forward to using it to inspire our staff. Um, but just to keep um, personal development is essential to any kind of academic progress, which then will help our students to enter the world fully ready to engage as citizens and professionally and as, um, you know, parents and family members. So that's my dream. Thank you, Julie. Okay, Dan, over to you. What's your dream for the future of education? Um, well, it's Julie's dream, actually. <laughs> we, we dream the same dream. Um, it is exactly that. But I think, I suppose my, my point as well would be to have a better understanding collectively of our holistic responsibility for this as a philosophy of education. And if we were to just go back very briefly to say, for example, um, there's too much focus sometimes on those representatives of minoritized groups there's an expectation that they are the ones who have to do the work they are the ones who need to be the change and act today we all have to be the change and we all have to take responsibility and therefore my dream is that we all see ourselves as learners to create the circumstances and an environment for success where everyone flourishes and so education is a is a personal but societal endeavor thank you dan and uh, Paul, over to you. What's, what's your dream for the future? Yeah, similar dream to everybody else. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'd like to see 
children in school, you know, rewarded for for kindness, not just cleverness. I'd like to see schools rewarded for that as well and look at the way that you know schools are, are graded because as long as as long as schools are, are judged on their exam results we will have a real disparity in what different schools are providing and i think if if there's different factors brought in much more explicitly to the the kind of um you know inspections of schools i think we'll naturally see things things change thank you paul okay and fred perfect timing two minutes to go over to you to round everything off. Very expertly chaired. Uh, and I will round off in a minute, but I'll answer your question. And then um, before I uh, round off, I will ask the question of you as well, Andrew, um, to, to kind of, you know, what's your dream? Because I'd like to, I, I think the audience needs to hear that as well. But my dream really is, uh, as I said at the beginning, that uh, one day maybe we won't have to have terminology to describe well-being, positive education, character education, but that all of it will just be education and the education will just have changed. Uh, that's what I'm working very hard to do. Um, and that's what I really hope to see in the future. Uh, so before I round off, I'll just uh, hand back over to you, Andrew. I'd like to uh, see if you can share what your dream is for the future of education. Yeah, so I'd very much like to see pretty much what everyone else is doing. Um, let's, let's erase those boundaries between what is well-being and character and and academic progress and just think about the whole child. Um, that holistic approach is what makes uh, makes the child that emerges at the other end. And it's very interesting meeting former pupils. Um, you know, they don't remember getting the level four or the level five under old money. They remember the funny things that happened in class, the things that they were taught to do, the models and examples that they were set. Um, that's what that's the real depth of education uh to make them the, the the young people that we want them to be so that's uh that's that's where i'm coming from Thank you so much, Andrew. And what a nice way to round that off. You know, if we think about education, what will children remember years after they've left school? And it's not those grades, as you rightly said, it's the experience they had, it's the teachers, it's the friendships, it's the people. Um, so why are we only focusing on one element? Absolutely. Um, and well, thank you very much, Andrew, for expert chairing and bang on time there with this panel. And, and thank you very much. I can't believe this hour has been and gone already. I'm sure we could have all carried on for ages. It's been such a uh, fascinating uh, discussion to have and, and we've uh, yet again only scratched the surface, but hopefully it's been really useful uh, and insightful uh, for those of you watching live and for those of you watching the replay after today as well. Um, and you can watch the replay of this panel, but also of the three preceding panels which took, pe uh, took place on the 18th of June when the Kindle launched. You can watch all of those um, if you just search for uh, for Flourishing Sake book launch on YouTube. You'll find there's a playlist with all the replays on there. So just search for that and you can watch them all back. And of course, remember 
to buy your copy of For Flourishing Sake to go far more in depth than we have been able to in the panel today and the previous ones. Um, once you've read it, I'd love to ask you for a favour. Books live and die on reviews, really. If you want more people to see the book and get it and make a difference in education, please, please leave a review on Amazon, which is where a lot of people do buy it. Um, and that will really help more people see the book in, in their suggestions, etc., when they're looking for well-being books. So please leave a review, even if it's just a one sentence or even just a star rating. Um, it really helps. So thank you so much for that. So all that remains for me to say is a huge thank you again to our panellists. And that's, of course, uh, Dan Morrow, Julie Goldstein and Paul Bateson and to the fantastic Andrew Cowley for his brilliant chairing of today's panel. Thank you so much. It's been very relaxing for me just being a panellist rather than chairing. And a huge thank you, of course, to Rebecca Osborne as well for the brilliant illustrations today. Um, so it's been fabulous having her with you, with us through all of these uh, panels. And thank you for watching. Thank you for being interested in making education better, because that's what it's all about. Um, so thank you, everybody. I will now go off and have some dinner. <laughs> and oh, we've got some more comments on social media. So I'll just have a look at those. Um, Oh, there you go. So uh, uh, Siobhan, who's been watching, wishing me good luck with the book. Thank you very much, uh, Siobhan. And thanks for your comments throughout. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for being here today. And uh, I'll see you again soon and have a great rest of the day and great weekend. Thank you for listening to the For Flourishing Sake podcast. If you have found this episode useful or interesting or fun, please give it a five star rating on iTunes. The podcast will be taking a little break now, but we will be back. So if you haven't already, remember to subscribe on your usual podcasting site so you'll never miss an episode. The For Flourishing Sake book is available from all major online book retailers in most countries. It's jam-packed with evidence-based strategies for whole school positive education with case study examples from a wide range of schools from around the world. Have you got your copy yet? If you'd like to get in touch with questions or comments or to contribute to a future podcast episode when we're back, please contact me via Twitter at Flourishing Ed. You can also leave comments on individual episodes pages at forflourishingsake.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, for flourishing sake, be safe, be well and have a great week. Mm -hmm.